Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Across the country, American cities are unsuccessfully grappling with how best to address homelessness. This month, Austin criminalized sitting, lying, or camping in public. Sausalito, an upscale community in the Bay Area, canceled its annual art festival when its location conflicted with the proposed place to relocate the homeless population that is currently living on the city's waterfront. Los Angeles is considering moving forward with establishing a government-funded tent encampment. Nationally, here's the picture that the New York Times summed up in March of this year. Quote, homelessness in the United States rose for the fourth straight year with about 580,000 people living on the streets or in temporary shelter at the start of 2020, according to an annual nationwide survey that was completed before the pandemic. But the report almost certainly underestimates the spread, depth and urgency of the crisis and not by a little, federal officials warned. So beyond the myriad factors that leave people on the streets, coming, expiring COVID-19 moratoriums on evictions mean that millions may soon find themselves without housing. For decades, Christian ministries have served food and offered temporary housing to people experiencing homelessness. Whose needs have these organizations traditionally met and how successful have they been? We wanted to talk about homelessness, why the problem is getting worse, why Christians don't always agree on the solutions, and what it means for the church to love its neighbor when trying to consider what is best for those on the street, local businesses, and the safety of everyone. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Executive Editor of Christianity Today. All right, Ted, this is definitely a topic that I'm sure lots of our listeners have strong gut reactions to and would love to hear how you're processing all of it. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I've been watching the kind of controversies over uh, some of these tent cities uh, for a while. I think they were some of the first articles that I was uh, looking at at Christianity Today as as kind of there's a controversy in Seattle in one of my old hometowns about a, a tent city in a, a fairly affluent part of the town. And so it's been interesting to kind of watch how that debate has changed over time and to watch some of the debates over kind of the right to be homeless or, or some of the phrases that, that kind of come up on that. But I think for me, it's also wrestling with the difference between the visible homelessness that I might encounter, especially in a COVID time with some of these uh, tent communities and also some of the invisible homelessness that I'm aware of, or just kind of insecurity in home. A number of folks just not knowing, knowing where they're sleeping now, but not knowing where they're going to sleep in the future. I often have wondered about what's my responsibility and is my understanding of the problem and solution really, really accurate. Morgan, what's your gut reaction on this? So I've lived in cities all my adult life. And so homelessness is something that 
I at least have to think about at some point as I navigate around the city. And here in Honolulu, this is definitely an issue that the city has been trying to figure out from what I understand for some time. I don't think it's something that has become any easier with the pandemic, but it is definitely something that affects a lot of what is happening downtown. So just a little context. I'm not talking about Waikiki necessarily. I'm talking about the actual like downtown where a lot of the government buildings are and businesses and so forth. And this has just been something that's been very hard as a lot of those downtown businesses have closed during the pandemic. And so there's been more and more congregating that's gone on over there. And I know for different businesses, there's been concerns about how to interact with that population. I also know that Hawaii is an extremely expensive place to live. And there is definitely a huge shortage of affordable housing, which is something that seems to always be yeah, a challenge for those that want to work with this population and want to house them somewhere is that the actual physical structure to that does not always exist. Yeah, when we talk about this issue, I was just really glad that we could devote an hour today to get into it because it always seems that there are so many ingredients that are causing it, which seems like to me like part of the reason why you can't just like solve homelessness. It seems like it's something that is involving addressing poverty, housing, mental illness, addiction, and so forth. And then trying to figure out when you're working with the public, you know, do you meet people's immediate needs? Do you go for long-term needs? And there's all these types of things that get stuck in there. I guess it doesn't say much about my reaction, but my reaction is a little bit of trying to figure out how I can interact more faithfully to my faith with this type of issue, but also how we ought to be kind of thinking about it, especially as these numbers are changing. So, Ted, who's our guest to discuss all of this with us today? Yeah, our guest is John Ashman. He has served as CEO of CityGate Network since 2007, back before it was known as CityGate Network. Uh, it was previously known as the Association of Gospel Rescue Missions. John is also the author of Invisible Neighbors. And before he went to what's now CityGate, he served in the COO role of the Christian Camp and Conference Association. He is knowledgeable and is connected with a lot of different folks who are looking at this issue. So great to have someone who has a broad view of this kind of thing. John, welcome to Quick to Listen. Thanks. Good to be with you. I'm probably in the middle between the two of you. I'm in Colorado. All right. That's great. Well, Morgan mentioned a few stats at the at the top of the show in the introduction. As I mentioned, you know, the question of about visibility and then, you know, numbers. It does seem at least like homelessness has worsened nearly every American city. Is that perception true? I mean, what's changed about kind of the size of the homeless population in recent years? Well, the numbers are increasing and the reporting of the numbers is the thing that's always suspect. It used to be that the numbers were in the 600,000 range is what HUD, the Housing and Urban Development, was reporting with their annual point in time counts. And then it dropped to low 600,000s and the High 500,000, they were down to about 530,000 at one point, but they were always, of course, changing the definition of homeless, which made it very difficult to really get your arms around it. But the recent point in time counts, you just can't deny that something is increasing when you, as Morgan was saying, try to navigate through the city. So in 2018, the HUD pit count showed about 550. 3,000 in 2019, 568,000. 
2020, we were at 580,000. The 2021 pit count is still trying to be understood because of some of the anomalies with the people moving about and not being where they normally would be to be counted in the aftermath of the pandemic. So the numbers are increasing. At CityGate Network, we generally say there's about a million people who are out there. And when we say that, because so many other agencies come up with different numbers, I thought it was interesting that when HUD was saying we have 550,000 homeless people out there, the Department of Education was saying, well, that's interesting. Why do we have almost 2 million homeless students in America? from obviously many of them the same family, but the, the, we just have never gotten to the point where all of the agencies are <laughs> the same metrics to do that. <laughs> right, yeah. My understanding is the Department of Education uses a, a definition that includes families who are like doubled up with yeah. other families because of economic hardship. And that gets to some of that question that I mentioned earlier about visible versus possibly in, invisible issues, question of kind of some of the social networks and social safety nets, I guess, when families are, are doubled up. Do we generally see that kind of visible and invisible or the doubling up versus the kind of folks in shelters and in public places? Do we generally see those going up and down together based on the national economy? Or do we see those changes in housing and security, I guess, kind of have their roots in, in different issues? We've seen the doubling up happen consistently, and it does affect the economy. There's just so many things that cause homelessness, and you just have to look at the situation at the time. Of course, now COVID really turned everything on its head in many respects because we used to be pretty full of our 300, well, actually about 320 organizations across North America that are part of CityGate Network. and. I guess most people have seen a local mission in their city, but in most U.S. cities, one of our member organizations is the largest homeless services provider. And in some cities, it's the only homeless services provider. But most of these places were full to capacity, and then we got COVID-19, and what happened is we started getting people coming in who were released from prisons and saying, there's no place for me to go, and you're the only game in town, so they would take those folks in. And then we had people who show up and saying there's no food in the house because there's no paycheck because uh, mom or dad or whoever the provider was is not working. Then we heard you can take us in and give us something to eat. And then you had people who were sleeping rough, meaning uh, outdoors and uncomfortable areas. And they're saying it's just too dangerous out here. And we think it's going to be safer in the mission. And so all of that, that combination of things really disrupted what would be the normal flow of understanding who's homeless and where they're staying. And we're just now trying to, to look at some of the numbers that are coming in to, to get an idea of if we're heading back to what would be the normal patterns. It, it looks like people are starting to come back into missions the way they were, but for a long time because of all the isolation that had to happen in missions. They were out and about in different places because capacities weren't there because of the restrictions put on. John, I want to ask you another question about COVID, but first I think it's important for us to get a sense of how CityGate has traditionally defined homelessness versus the government. Well, we've 
said that if you don't have your own safe place to return to night after night, you would be homeless. The government would probably at one point say that, but if you're living doubled up, you're not homeless. Or one of those new nuances that, that they added in was if you stayed in a hotel two nights in the last two weeks or something like that, you're not homeless. So you'd have people who were sleeping in an encampment and somebody would know where they were and come say, hey, you've you got to check down at the post office. And, and they would go down and look at what money came in from what government agency. And they'd say, thank God, hot water and clean sheets. And they'd check into a seedy motel and be there until the money ran out and be back in the encampment. But according to the government, they weren't homeless at that point because they uh, didn't qualify under the definition. So if you don't have that place that you can call your own, uh, whether you're paying rent or you're paying a mortgage or it's paid off, whatever, you're probably in a situation where you're homeless. So you talked a little bit about COVID. Did local governments end up putting in ordinances that actually ended up capping the number of people that could stay in homeless shelters? Or did the people who often stay at these shelters end up deciding that they did not feel comfortable staying in them? Well, there's a little bit of both, but the we did have numbers that we looked at. I was actually on the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness COVID-19 Task Force starting in early April of uh, 2020. On that was folks from HUD and Health and Human Services, the CDC. The White House was actually on the call for a, a good bit of that time. Other agencies, FEMA, of course. And, and so we were looking at the, the folks coming in and saying, we have to do two things here. We have to save lives and protect the hospital systems. And the reason we said protect the hospital system was because if a homeless shelter were to go hot, meaning everybody there got COVID-19, there was not enough hospital beds in even large cities to handle that because you had you may have had a lot of beds, but you didn't have them set up with the ventilation system built into the wall and all the services areas that they need to treat people who had COVID-19. So we had to work. And this was, a, in a way, this was the good part of that. The collaboration that took place in cities was wonderful. Ministries that probably didn't do a whole lot of talking to one another because they're so busy in their own area, but we tend to get siloed in ministries. They started sharing resources, started talking about, why don't you take the isolation group and we'll take the rule out group or whatever it happens to be. And then we started working with health departments, some cities, places like the convention center or sporting arena or uh, different hotels were used to take different groups so that they could be spread out and be isolated according to the CDC guidelines. Help me understand also a little bit of what's happening with trends in suburban homelessness uh, as well as urban homelessness. I know a lot of you know groups formerly known as gospel rescue missions, I guess some, some still use that, you know, have been pretty focused on urban and especially center city communities. You know, we've done a lot of reporting in CT about how suburbs are changing and becoming more diverse in all sorts of different ways, but how there's a lot more economic diversity as well. And I'm just curious about how homelessness might be shifting to more of a suburban or outside center city issue. Are you guys finding that? Yeah, homelessness used to be concentrated in the urban areas and in probably the roughest locations. My predecessor, say, 
<laughs> he heard people often comment that, hey, we just got a new building. It's downtown between a bar and a brothel. We couldn't ask for a better place because that's where all the people were. But when you look at some of these missions that have been around for years, they started in the area where people were, uh, down in the stockyards or down in the rail yards, you know, by the docks or whatever. And, of course, the people who were homeless at the time would come out and they would panhandle in the urban areas because that's where passerbys would be. You know, anybody who was going to flip a coin in their hat or cup or whatever, that's where the traffic was. But what we have seen over the last decade, for sure, is this is all seeping into suburbia now. And some of that, there's multiple reasons. Some cities... They have wanted to close the missions or move them out a little bit. And let's get them out farther from the center city because we're losing tourist business or we're losing convention business. And so they'll relocate service providers. When they relocate them, they're sending them out and they're getting them closer to suburbs. There was one city that offered gambling. They didn't like the fact that people were homeless and panhandling outside the casino doors. And so it was hurting their business. So the city actually went and built for multiple organizations, including our rescue mission member that was in that city. They built beautiful facilities about 10 blocks away. They thought this was this was wonderful. The only thing they forgot was that homeless people have feet. And so <laughs> you know, they, they uh, don't right. stay down where they built the new facility, but in the morning they get up and they walk all the way back to where the casinos were. That's what you have in suburbia because – As cities have grown and and towns have sprung up and access to these areas is is a little more easy to navigate, you get people spilling over into these areas. Another thing that has caused that, too, is opioid addictions. And whereas uh, drug addiction and just being out on your own on the street used to be something that you would see downtown, you now have a younger set of homeless youth that are in suburbia. The whole complexion of this is changing both in the location and and the people who are affected. I'm glad you're talking about the changing complexion of this. Maybe we can just be a little bit more specific about some of the other reasons and conditions that folks who are experiencing homelessness end up falling into. What are the different types of reasons, whether they're individual or systemic, that these groups often are in? Well, the reasons that people experience homelessness are myriad. You know, that you have family dysfunction, you have lack of education. That's where you get your generational homelessness. You have people aging out of the foster care system. Many as 40% of the people who age out of foster care end up homeless at some point. You have LGBTQ youth who are either asked to leave their home because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, or they just run away from home and they end up homeless. Some numbers I've seen, as many as 60-70% of homeless youth are category of the LGBTQ. You have the legalization of marijuana. That has really affected a lot of cities and states where that's now legal. You have human trafficking victims. You have post-traumatic stress disorder, people on the streets. I mean, the list goes on and on. And then you also have folks out there who are just saying, you know what? With all the government services out there, this is a pretty easy life. 
I can sleep where I want. I can get meals in multiple locations. If I don't like what they're serving at that mission, I can go over to that church or this agency. And I was at one mission one time and forget where we were eating. It was good, but it was probably not the best thing being served that day in the city. And we were sitting there eating these sandwiches and somebody comes up and pounds on the window and yells, they've got lasagna at St. Jude's. And everybody gets up and leaves and and uh, goes and gets another meal or a different meal. There's this group out there that saying, I can get shoes here. I, I can go over here on Tuesdays and get medical care and dental care is available here. And I don't have to have a job and I can sleep where I want. I, I can hit up when I want and smoke what I want. And that population seems to be growing in a lot of, uh, a lot of cities, particularly in places where it's warm. Uh, you don't have to worry about uh, freezing to death at night. Is there also been an increase in the homeless population overall in places where it's just very unaffordable to find a place to live? I'm thinking of a place like the San Francisco Bay Area, for instance. Yes, you know, of course, when uh, housing costs are, are out of sight, that puts people on the street as well. There's a lot of government programs to build it, you know, the, the millions upon millions that they're raising in places like Los Angeles to, to put people in affordable housing. And, and uh, they've had, they have 66,000 homeless people in Los Angeles right now in a 50 square block area. And they've been raising money for years and years to build homes. And the, the, in the number of houses that they actually have finished are just a fraction of what they need. They just can't catch up with it. And there's a lot of uh, beard stroking, I guess you could say, of, you know, where is this money really going? There's some things going on right now in Los Angeles that are causing some people to uh, sit up straight and see where this is going. There's a group that actually has sued the city of Los An- city and county of Los Angeles because of the tents they're allowing to be on the sidewalks. You cannot walk the sidewalks in the Flower District or in some of the other areas that are very close to downtown because of people there, they consider the sidewalks their property and the street their backyard. And the pedestrian traffic is generally in the edge of the street, and you have to watch the cars on one side, and you have to watch that you're not tripping over somebody whose belongings are coming off the sidewalk and impeding your progress. There are five people who die every day on the average in Los Angeles because of homelessness. So this group that has sued the city and there's a judge who actually has looked at, I think his name is uh, Judge Carter, and he has determined that the uh, city and county of Los Angeles has to solve this problem by October. They cannot have anybody (laughs) on the street by October. And I think the, the women and children have to be resettled sometime in uh, in summer. And so they just tried to get a dismissal and the judge d- denied city and county of Los Angeles, denied their dismissal of this case. And so this will probably work its way through the courts. But if nothing else, this is this is telling those, those people in government positions uh, that uh, you've got to do something about this. You know, the, the money that's uh, that's being spent here, it's going to developers, it's going to study committees, it's going to all of these places that, frankly, are making people rich on this homeless problem that we have. They haven't solved the problem, and this judge has said enough's enough to solve this by October. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. 
You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I guess when I think about Christian engagement on homelessness, I often think about some of the stuff that you mentioned before about Christians being heavily involved in kind of the, the food kitchen side of things or to, and to some degree the, the shelters. But when I think about like when someone at a local congregation says, hey, you know, maybe I should do something about the homeless, solutions that they that pop into their head are usually like I should go volunteer to, at a soup kitchen. Not so much on some of the, the laws or some of the um, high social structure things that, that you're talking about. Even less, I think, on kind of cost of housing. Do you see that as a problem? Do Christians need to address this more as a as a policy issue, or is it you know, hey, people who are called to the policy stuff, fine, they can they can go do that, and we just need more ground troops on the soup kitchen line. Like, what's the unique thing that Christians can contribute on the solution side? I think Christians need to be very vocal and get involved in politics. That's the first thing. If we're going to solve this. We have to change a lot of these lax laws out there that are allowing people to remain homeless and be comfortable. There are certainly in that category that I mentioned of people who are seeing this as an easy life. They come to a rescue mission day after day after day. They have no desire to change. They've come to see the mission as their kitchen, their closet, and their bedroom. And when there's an opportunity to make a difference and saying, hey, you're tired of living like this? You know, Are you interested in an addiction recovery program? No, and off they go again. Interestingly, a lot of our organizations are saying, you know, we are here to help those people who want to be served. We're not here to do disaster relief. A few have actually closed their emergency shelter 
areas and have concentrated all their efforts on life recovery programs, uh, life transformation, we call it. That is something that we're starting to wonder if it's going to be a trend. When we did our last count of the number of beds that are out there and missions and similar ministries that are part of CityGate Network, the number of emergency shelter beds has declined and the number of program beds has increased. That is letting us know that what we've been talking about for all this time of of life transformation is the reason we're there. We're not there to provide these services over and over and over again without any exit strategy for the people. You have to have an exit strategy. So what can Christians do? They, they certainly can get involved in government and help with these lax laws that I mentioned. You, you want to make sure that the people are treated humanely and with dignity, but at the same time, not allowed to live like this because it's comfortable for them in the stage that they're in life. And, and this is not to discount the people out there who have mental illness. You know, the recent numbers show about 78% of the people who are homeless on the West Coast, where it was measured, have some form of mental illness. There has to be mental health assessments done, and many of our missions have mental health clinics in their buildings these days. The other thing that I tell pastors to do is stop feeding people in the park. We think that that's what we have to do, and I think there's a lot of people who misinterpret Matthew 25, 31 to 46 as licensed to feed everybody. Let's just go out and feed, and you know the youth pastors get involved, and let's go down and take pizzas to everybody down in Acadia, Acadia Park, and they get 30, 40 pizza boxes and go down, and the youth group is very engaged, and they're passing out the, the, the pizza, and you know, here's a piece of sausage pizza in Jesus' name. They have a little bit of a conversation, maybe, and and they get back to the church and go to the youth room and they talk about their experience. And it was an amazing experience for the youth group, no doubt, but it didn't do a thing for the people in the park. But they don't have to worry about it because tomorrow night they're, they're, they're getting hoagies from the Methodist church or somebody else is coming in time after time. And as Dr. Robert Marbitt, who was the former homelessness czar, said, nobody ever got out of homelessness with a meal. A meal keeps them alive, but you have to have an exit strategy. You have to have programs that, that are making a difference. I just want to kind of work through my initial reaction when I hear some of the stuff that you're talking about. When I think of passing more laws to make it harder for to be homeless, I guess my initial reaction is like, how does it help to criminalize something like this? Doesn't this just put more people in the criminal justice system? This was kind of the reaction I had when I had read about some of the ordinances that went into place in Austin where they were going to ban people from lying down in the streets and ban people from camping. Do we know if these policies that end up essentially making it illegal to sleep on the streets end up having the effect that they're trying to purport to do? What's missing here, Morgan, is a sense of responsibility. We have taken away from the people who are on the street because of our desire to be humane. We've taken away any sense of responsibility. Yes, there's mental, mental illness and there's addictions that have to be treated. But if you don't have a sense of responsibility and, and you don't feel some sort of pain, you know, from being out living this lifestyle, then we're, we're going to see more and more people there. We kind of, step back from this idea of, oh, we don't want them to 
to feel like we're criminalizing what they're doing. No, it's we, we don't want people arrested and, and thrown in jail, but we do want ordinances that kind of funnel people toward those places where services can be provided. Unless you have services, I keep coming back to this, unless you have wraparound services that go with the other the other things that are happening and you have programs that help people with their condition in life and getting them to understand their role in society, you're going to just see more and more folks on the streets like we've been seeing. I would point to some of the statistics that were put out by the homelessness czar, Dr. Robert Marbit, uh, in the last administration that kind of takes a look at all these claims that our homeless numbers are going down. When he added together, and I was part of the committee that was doing a lot of this, many others in different agencies, using HUD's numbers, when you look at unsheltered homeless, plus those in emergency shelter beds, and those in transitional housing, those in rapid rehousing, you even have those in permanent supportive housing, the numbers were actually going down for homelessness until the government said, you know, we're going to cease services. We're not going to mandate services that anybody who is homeless has to go to see an addiction recovery counselor or a caseworker. And we'll just say the solution is housing first and we'll put you in a house. Well, when that happened nationally, from the time that that happened until the end of 2019, the unsheltered homeless saw a 20.5% increase. And across the board, when you add in all those other things I was saying, those in transitional housing, rapid rehousing, permanent supportive beds, that still showed an increase in homelessness of 15.6%. The absence of services, of required services, has been something that has hurt the situation, and we're going to continue to see more people on the streets unless... There is some requirement, some sense of responsibility, and if that does involve some laws that uh, that are going to get people to think twice before they take over a certain area of town and say, this is where we're going to stay, then so be it. I think it has to happen. Yeah, I think I have the reaction that I do because I just, in my mind, it's hard for me to imagine that the majority of people want to be homeless, right? The different type of like, assumptions that you make. And I I know I recognize that there's probably different subgroups of this community, right? It's hard to just like speak monolithically about the homeless, right? <laughs> there's so many different reasons that you brought up earlier about how people end up on the street. But to me, that does kind of change the ways that you, we might use carrots or sticks to assist with people in here. And I do wonder though, for people who legitimately feel that they do not have access to be able to afford their own place. Is that is that a fair assumption that there are people just out on the street because they even if they are working a job, they actually just can't afford to live in someplace like Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and just to be very clear, lack of affordable housing is a very significant reason that goes with all of those other reasons that I gave earlier. You have people who are the working homeless. They sleep in their car. They sleep in their van. Again, we talked about doubling up. So that is a problem. And there are solutions being tried in that area. The solution of tiny home communities. I know that in the San Fernando Valley area, there's one of our members that's doing a lot with that. Probably 
five or six others that I can name in different places, one in Texas, one in New York, one in Georgia, that is making a difference. And that certainly is a much better solution than encampments or tents. You know, these places that where there are encampments, Ted, you were mentioning about Seattle and I know that they've they've had to dismantle. Eventually, they dismantled these places. It did so in Fresno, and and the reason is because those encampments become the, their own. They have their own subculture and their own community, and the drugs and the prostitution and everything else that is in those communities, the the, the, the health issues and the fighting that goes on in those things. It's just it's, it sends many people to. Emergency rooms and and there's so many laws being broken there. So that is not a not a solution. Um, if you have a home community, you uh, you certainly can have that supervised and have it in a place where easier access to to these services that I mentioned. Yeah, when you're talking about services, then what I think what you're saying is there are for the community that kind of lives in a subculture that's in some ways detached from employment or so forth, there needs to be stronger incentives to help folks who may live in some sort of, I don't know, larger street subculture to reintegrate, for lack of a better word. And we need to be creating stronger incentives for that to happen, not for people who are necessarily just sleeping on the streets because they are unable to afford a place to live. Right. And and I, I mentioned, and you mentioned, when I talked about people taking responsibility, and you mentioned carrots and sticks. I, I think there needs to be more, definitely more carrots, certainly not saying we need more sticks, but you have to have the ordinances for people to realize that, ooh, I guess I can't do that anymore. I think I told this story to Ed Stetzer not long ago. You know, one of our member organizations, the CEO called me and said, John, I'm meeting with the city council in a couple of hours, and I need some insights. I said, what's going on? And he told me we've we've had all of these these laws passed that allow homeless people to be very comfortable in their situation. One of them was that if you are homeless, your your car can be your domicile. So, and, and that's the case. You can park it anywhere that it's not inhibiting the flow of traffic, and you can congregate anywhere you want. You can camp where you want. These are the laws that they put in place. And there gets to be in many towns, you know, a tipping point where the people are saying, you know, I think enough's enough. And the illustration I gave is some mother's going to say, you know, I don't want my daughter walking to school past that van down there and have the door slide open and somebody snatch her and walk away. Maybe it wouldn't happen, but you still have that concern with, with the population. And, and others saying, you know, if, if these people are out on the ball field and this is where they shoot up or, or whatever they're, they happen to be doing because we know the high rate of addiction in the homeless community. Nobody wants their son to slide into third base and get a, a needle in their knee that was buried in the sand. Can't go fishing down in the river anymore because of all the runoff past the human feces and the place stinks. And what can we do about this? They were saying, and they were saying to the, to the mission director that you have to get your people in and and to do this you have to lower the barriers of and what that means in many situations because our missions are gospel rescue missions with a specific focus of having the gospel being a new starting point 
and they're saying, don't have the gospel be part of it because that may keep people away and allow them to bring their drugs in and allow them to bring their pets in. And, you know, many of our places do have kennels for the pets of people who are homeless, but to change the structure of what we're about based on what laws were passed in the community is something that we're not going to change a rescue mission structure because of what's going on on the street. In this particular situation, the, the director of the mission said, you build a shelter and we'll manage it for you. We know how to do that, but we're not going to change what we do in our mission. And when I say the gospel is, is a focus, we believe that the Bible says life comes with a reset button. Second Corinthians, it says, if any person be in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things are passed away. Everything can become new. And we see this day after day in our 300 plus organizations where folks are making a decision to, to start again. They're accepting the gospel as being available specifically for them and they trust Jesus and move forward with a new, a new perspective on life. That's not going to change in what we do. It hasn't changed in the hundred plus years that CityGate Network, including its other names, has been around, and we continue to provide those services from a gospel perspective. Tell me a little bit about how the gospel mission model has changed, especially in the last just few years. I know that we mentioned at the top of the show that you know your own organization has had a name change, and, and I think we might have covered you know some of the reasons for that already in other CT articles. But just in the last few years. It sounds like the gospel, you know, the, the preaching aspect still is a, is a core part of it, but the rescue part may be a little bit less of a central focus. What, what's going on there? Rescue is still there, and it, it really never leaves. Rescue is the vestibule. You know, that's what you can get people in. People have to come in because they have this need in their life, and, and maybe it's because the laws have changed, and they say, I can't sleep it here on the street in Austin anymore. I have to go into the mission. And they come in the mission and they say, you know, there's there are other alternatives. Uh, the, the mission here in Colorado Springs, they have three different areas of shelter. The first one is bare minimum. You know, these are the people and they can come in. They can't use their narcotics or, or alcohol in the mission, but they can come in drunk. They can come in high. They're monitored very closely and they have to be out at early in a certain time. But they can see across the parking lot, there's another place where... There are nicer beds. Uh, people can stay a little bit later. They can't come in and be drunk or high in a place like that. And then those people can see that there are others who you know, can come in because they are, they've joined a program and they're making changes in their life. So, you know, this is that carrot that we talked about, Morgan, where you can say, hmm, I don't think I want this lifestyle. And look over there. They can sleep until 830 in that place over there. And the people who are in that middle area, they, they're saying, well, these, these folks are going to classes and some of them are getting jobs. And, and so that's the, the, the approach that missions are, are starting to take. When you asked Ted about, you know, how is it changing? They're taking a look at how they can help people see that there's a difference in, in what they're experiencing and what they could experience. I talk about this idea of disaster relief. In fact, I mentioned it earlier that disaster relief is food, clothing, and shelter. We usually get that out after people lose their homes or whatever it may be in a fire or a flood or a hurricane or whatever. 
but you always have an exit strategy. You you work to get them back into their homes. There are many organizations that have done service for hungry, homeless, abused, addicted people that there's no exit strategy. And so the CityGate network of today is what is the exit strategy? We put eight S words together to say this is what life transformation looks like. The first S is saved. Right away, I need to say, you know, there are some people who come to a mission and there's a chapel service and they make a change in their life. They come to the front, they talk to a counselor, and and they start with that idea of being really engaged with the gospel. But when we use the word saved in in these eight S's, we mean we saved a life. We saved them from overdosing. We saved them from the control of their PIP. We saved them because we provided good nutrition, particularly when it comes to young children whose brain and body development might not be where it needs to be because they've, they're homeless and not getting good food. After save, the second S is sober, no longer controlled by stimulants or depressants. After sober comes stable. That's the mental health. That's physical health. Many of our organizations have uh, medical respite care. And then after that comes schooled. Schooled could mean finishing your, your high school degree. It could be social skills. It could be computer skills. It's enough education to be competitive out there. After that comes skilled. Skilled is not just helping people get a job, but helping them understand that they could have a career in a particular area, whether it be culinary arts or tire and wheel balancing or carpentry or call center training, things like that. After skilled comes secure. That means you're getting a paycheck and uh, you're taking, you know how to manage your money. After that is settled. So your own safe place to return to every night and maybe even taking in your relatives who have been on the street as well. And then the last S is serving. So saved, sober, stable, schooled, Skilled, secure, settled, serving. That's what missions are about these days. These city missions are looking at this and saying, you know, well, God didn't call me to do all of these. And we're saying, well, maybe he's called you to do the first three or maybe you're just doing housing. That's fine. But you need to be partnering with other organizations that are doing the same thing. We can't be siloed anymore. We have to be collaborative if we're going to see money ministry work in the days ahead, particularly when it comes to homelessness. (laughs) Siloed is the S not to do. Yes, there you go. Are these criteria that you just mentioned, John, steps that the gospel missions measure themselves and have the numbers on? We're starting to. I'm proud to say that there are many of our members who are getting on board and we're starting to measure outcomes. Christians have been experts at measuring outputs, whether it be in a church or Sunday school, how many how many buses did we have bringing how many children into Sunday school, or you know how many people made a decision to trust Christ in church, or you know how has the youth retreat gone, and how many people came? You know, we just we measure we've we've done it for years. You know, the the, the old Billy Graham crusades, where how many people came forward, how many people got literature outputs measure need outcomes measure success so we're now starting to measure how many people who made a decision for christ are still living in christian community two years later how many people who went through an addiction recovery program are clean and sober two years later how many people who were placed in a house 
are still living there a, a year later, 18 months later, whatever it happens to be. How many people who were put in a job and trained for that job are still employed years later? Those are a little bit harder to get because it's just not a point in time. You have to follow people. But follow-up has always been the difficult part of any ministry. You mentioned all the years I was in Christian camping. I was at Christian Camping Conference Association for 15 years, but before that I was a camp director for 15 years. I know how hard follow-up is, but it has to be done for a number of reasons because we, we need to see these results and these results are, are going to be evidence that we need to say there's an evidence-based solution to our homeless problem, and, and here's what it is. That's great. You know, I kind of talked earlier about what the typical person in the pew might have an incentive to do or might kind of think that they should do. It sounds from our conversation like maybe the typical person in the pew has maybe a bit of a, a naive or, or, or maybe a sentimental view. Uh, of what they should do about about homelessness, accepting that probably one thing that <laughs> when you have that prompting that that someone should do is is uh, write a check to their local gospel mission. But other than that, what should our response be? Like when when we feel that prompting of well, I should probably do something about the homeless, what is it that the average Christian should have as their initial follow up? Most people think back toward traditional assistance, and it has to do with writing a check, and those are definitely needed because all 320 of our member organizations that are out there don't take government funds or don't take them in a way that inhibits what they have the ability to teach and preach, and so they are dependent on those. So writing that check definitely is something that needs to happen. But the other way that they've always been involved is feeding, and it usually pops into their mind sometime around Thanksgiving or the Christmas holidays where they're going, you know, to make our Thanksgiving complete, let's just see if we can get on the list to go down and and put sweet potatoes on the plate down at the mission Thanksgiving. That's wonderful, and missions definitely need volunteers. They need them uh, not just on Thanksgiving. I tell people that's, that's great if you can do that, but remember, homeless people will be hungry the second Tuesday of March, just, just as much as they are the, the fourth Thursday of, of November. What we have to do is look at creative ways we can partner with places that are understanding things like this. I'm encouraging, and I'm seeing it happen in various places, uh, how about a pastor of street ministries at a, at a church, a pastor of homeless ministries? You know, we have a pastor of missions, we have a pastor of youth, we have a pastor of music. We go on, but if we really are understanding what Jesus said about the poor and how we need to engage. Why aren't churches having a pastor of homeless ministries as prominently displayed as they, they do with some of these other uh, options there? But there's also in missions, there's chances for people to engage. I mentioned chapel services. That's how missions used to be. Remember, you came in and you Went to a chapel service, you got a meal, you had a place to stay, and then you were out the next morning and you'd have a chapel service on a regular basis. A lot of missions do chapel services, but some of them maybe don't have them as often, but they have conversation specialists, table chaplains. You go in and you eat with the people who are homeless. You look across the table, you look into their eyes, you get to know their their name and their story, and then you get to tell your story. And you can have engagement that way. That's a, a great way to minister. That's a great way to work with the missions. And then you can bring some of these people back to your your church. 
And so that's a connection that a lot of people sometimes overlook. And then there are many ways to partner with missions in this education area for computer skills. There just needs to be this partnership and not the silos. Uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of churches who think we can handle this ourselves. Let's just be a self-sufficient ministry that's doing this. But I don't know of too many churches that know what to do with somebody who's been addicted to crack for 12 years. Thank you very much for our discussion today, John. I definitely echo the one of the points that you made about going to some of these food ministries. I know I've definitely been able to build good relationships with folks over the years, and I'm looking forward to a time here in Honolulu when some of the restrictions around feeding folks in open places relax a little bit so I can go back to volunteering there. So. Thank you so much for our discussion. For people who have feedback for us, you can send us an email at podcasts, with an S, podcast, at christianitytoday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Slow to Speak, which is when we get to hear from all of you listeners. And Ted, you know, we are constantly asking people to react to specific episodes, which is this is definitely not saying we don't want people to react to specific episodes, but we now have an added incentive for people who are adding their commentary about what they think of the show in general. And that is that they should rate and review the show. We say that every week, rate and review the show, especially on the most prominent of platforms like Apple Podcasts. But we really mean it, and that really helps us. And we are doing this like special campaign you should help boost Quick to Listen by rating and reviewing us, especially on Apple Podcasts. And if you do, we will give you, well, we won't guarantee to give you, we will put your name in a drawing for one of many, many coffee mugs. Quick to Listen coffee mugs. Quick to Listen special coffee mugs. We got a bunch of them. We can't guarantee that you'll get one, but chances are better than entering other types of contests. All you got to do is review us. It doesn't even have to be an awesome review. We would appreciate it if you said nice things about us, but we are not asking you to skew your opinion. Right. Just, you, it could be short. It can be a poem. It could be, a, <laughs> you know, whatever. Say something about us. Tell other people about us. Take a photo of it. Do a screen cap, whatever. Send it to us. We'll throw your name in and we'll tell you if you want a mug. All right. So that's, I'll just add that's one thing stuff. to say that the the mugs have been ordered they have not arrived at our office yet, but we will obviously ship them out as soon as we get them. So if you are among the folks, which there are definitely folks who have already begun to help us out in this way, I got your email and we will make sure that if you have been a contest winner, you will get a mug. Yeah, I will acknowledge publicly that there will be one fewer winner than there might otherwise have been because I'm going to snag one of those <laughs> mugs for myself <laughs> selfishly. But man, you know, co-host a quick to listen, man. I, there's certain right. privileges that come with the job. Exactly. All right. Anyway, Morgan, they should just email that to podcasts with an S at ChristianityToday.com, right? They should. All right. Now we are going to read some individual letters. Last week's podcast was about the Palestinian-Israeli crisis. So I'm going to read a letter from Daryl Nuss. Dear Morgan and Ted, I just finished listening to this week's podcast about the Palestinian-Israeli crisis. 
I appreciated your guest Salim's background and perspective that he shared. But why didn't you ask about Salim's perspective on the Hamas involvement in the crisis? I have long wanted to know why Palestinian Christians and other parties haven't made an effort to confront the gathering and use of rockets directed towards Israel, over 4,000 this time, in this conflict. To me, this is a major issue that casts the plight of Palestinians in a negative light. I don't see how we can engage or even how we can pray, or even if we can know how to pray, until we understand more about Hamas and their involvement in this conflict. Great point, Daryl. I wish I'd asked that question. (laughs) That's all I will say. Thank you for bringing that up. And I would like to hear what Salim would say about that as well. We got another letter about our interview with Salim. And that is from a guy named Jeff who says, I want to thank you for that episode. Actually, I'm a first time listener. I've been evangelical for many years and I thought I knew what CT was all about. But clearly I need to reconsider. Your guest was excellent and the podcast was superb. You handled the issue, which has got to be one of the most difficult of all issues for you, just right. Thank you. It might be just the best single podcast I've ever heard. And it was certainly the best use I've made of an hour recently. Thank you for your good work, Jeff. Jeff, thank you for that letter <laughs> to which I have many mixed emotions. So, you know, that's good. You know, quick to listen should be a thing that makes you feel mixed feelings, I think, sometimes. But I'm glad that you have found CT to be more helpful than you had initially assumed. Great. I hope you check out our other stuff too, because man, that's that's what we're all about over here. <laughs> convincing people that Christianity today is not as bad as they thought it was. <laughs> no, I mean, what are your magazine or publication that's been around for 65 years and different people have different views about what, you know, what Christianity today is. Probably most of what I hear about CT is, oh, it's different than I thought it was. I appreciate, Jeff, your enthusiasm and truly thank you for that letter. And willingness to be wrong, right? I Right. And willingness to like actually, you know, just sit and write down a letter and say, dude, <laughs> that was good. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. I would say, can I just say, can I just say, <laughs> since this is a letter to the editor thing, like dropping someone a letter that says like, hey, I don't have anything to say other than just like, I really thought that was great. And thank you for that. Yes, we appreciate it when you do. Please send us those letters. We love those. But if you're not going to say that about our thing, you should just take a few minutes today to send someone a letter to say, hey, that thing you made, it was cool. I liked it. Because, you know, even if you think that they're getting a lot of those letters, they probably are not. And I don't ever think it's wrong to affirm creators. People No, no, no. I agree. And you can even say, I I thought your thing was going to be terrible, but it ended up actually (laughs) not being so bad. All right. I'm going to go back to an episode that we did a couple weeks ago. This one was about transgenderism. We got this letter from Jamie. I can't tell you how much I appreciated this episode. As someone who experienced gender dysphoria and felt alone and at times worried something was seriously wrong with me, I'm so glad these conversations are finally being had in the Christian community in a way that is informative and helpful. Despite being grateful to have grown up in a Christian home, which I believe kept me or discouraged me, albeit in a closeted manner, from exploring and entertaining certain feelings as a child and teen, I do wish I had a community that talked about these topics back then. Being able to have a term for what you're dealing with from personal experience made a huge difference, but relief, so to speak, I didn't experience until adulthood. LGBTQIA plus conversations in the Christian world haven't had the best track records, but open dialogues like this help. Thank you very much, Jamie, for sharing a very heartfelt letter. And once again, I'm very grateful for that 
episode that we did on that topic. People who want to listen to this specific episode that Jamie is talking about is episode 260, Why the Transgender Conversation is Changing. All right. Well, we got some good letters this week. I hope that many of you guys have thoughts and feelings and opinions that you want to share about homelessness. It'd be really great to hear reports from the ground or ways that you and or your churches have engaged with this issue. And again, you can do that by sending us an email at podcast, podcast with an S, at christianneedtoday.com. There's also the same email address that you need to send your screenshots to as well, along with your address. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when we have a chance to hear about what has brought everyone on the show some joy recently. Ted, you have something this week? I do have something this week. I'm going back to my stable here, which is board games I've enjoyed playing with my family. As things warm up, I will probably have more board games I'm playing with my friends, but more family board game here. This week's is a game called Imhotep. It came out about five years ago. And as you can kind of probably guess from the name, it is a, takes place in Egypt. And you are builders in Egypt who uh, are building monuments or pyramids or various and sundry things. You've got these uh, big blocks that you are putting on ships and then sending the ships over to put the blocks into, into these different buildings. Fairly simple. Art's fairly simple. The uh, pieces are fairly simple. The strategy is <laughs> seems very simple, but then all of a sudden gets pretty complicated. It's something that you can play very casually. It's something you can play with kids or it's something you can play if you wanted to very competitively and very much trying to block each other and kind of a take that approach. Created by a guy named Phil Walker Harding, who's out in Australia. He's a, he's a, a Christian. Uh, there's a number of Christians in the board gaming creation world. Phil Walker Harding is one of my favorites. He did the game Sushi Go and some other top board games. This game, it's just delightfully fun to build your pyramids, try to send one of your fellow players' boats someplace where they didn't necessarily want to go. Very fun. Imhotep. I don't know if it's worth the $40. Uh, Don't say that. <laughs> well, I you know I, I will say I suggested retail's forty bucks on this. I'm like, yeah, you might be able to get a better game for forty bucks, but you can usually find this for less than that. So because uh, it's been around for five years, but I would say it's super fun. And there's a if you've just if you're going to be playing just with like a roommate or a spouse, there's a two player version called Imhotep Duel that is very tight. But I wouldn't recommend getting that unless you are used to games where you're really kind of pounding your opponent because it, it gets <laughs> two players you're really you're really making the other person kind of mad with oh you stinker so Imhotep the regular game gives you enough freedom and enough kind of take that approach that you're not getting too mad at each other during the game but anyway <laughs> that's Imhotep I'll, I'll say that Morgan I'm on Twitter I am I'm at Ted Olson at T-E-D-O-L-S-E-N Morgan is it a lovely hike or you have something else for us this week Yes, Ted, actually, you know my precious moment, which is that my friend Asia, who's visiting me, got baptized on Sunday, and this was just a very lovely thing. As Ted heard when I shared during one of our prayer meetings here at the office, but essentially, my friend had been wanting to get baptized for a little over than the past year, and essentially, the pastor at my church announced last week that he was going to be baptizing someone else. And if anyone else was interested, they should go approach him. And so she did. And 
we, yeah, he baptized her in the ocean as one does over here. And yeah, it was awesome to just hear her and the other guy who got baptized share why they wanted to get baptized and what it meant to them. And you could tell how much it meant to them. And what I thought was really wonderful is that my friend had maybe been to three or four events where there were church people at. And I think every single person who had met her at whatever church event, there were a couple of volunteering days. There was one church service. That's about it. That was like the sum of the reactions brought her a lay which I was like very touched by to see that and a lot of coming up and hugging and people introducing themselves and saying hi. And it was really just beautiful to see someone obviously just take this step of faith in a place where, you know, they clearly felt like this was something they were called to do, even if they didn't know that community. But then I was really moved to just watch this community assemble, especially because there was such a contrast where one guy who had, his whole family and lots of friends and people he'd known for a long time versus my friend, right, who had just gotten here a couple of weeks ago. But to watch the church community really step up in that way was also just really validating and affirming about how to love each other really well, especially in a moment like this. So I really appreciated that as well as just being present for a baptism because it's been a number of years since I'd been at a baptism, especially as someone who goes to house churches. Those are just things that don't happen as regularly <laughs> as places that have some more formal way to do those. So, yay, it was awesome. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. John, what's your precious moment? I'll just go back to last week. My job has me doing a lot of travel, but even my travel has me connecting with CEOs at missions and city governments and executive kind of role that you would have when you run a an organization like CityGate Network. But last week, I actually was down in Tennessee. It was at Amy Grant's farm. And uh, you know, she's got this farm that she says is her five loaves and two fish. She uses it for multiple purposes. But uh, we, we brought a group in from one of our member organizations of 12 women who were going through the New Life program at that mission, and we also brought in some singer-songwriters and spent a week kind of doing camp with them, bringing out this idea of they have a name. They have a, a name that people need to use, but they also need to understand their own name. You know, homeless people have a PR problem. We, just, we objectify them. We don't call them by name. We just look at them and go, look at that homeless guy or the homeless, and we don't take the time to get to know them. So we gave every one of the people as they came in a a placard that had their name and calligraphy and had the meaning. Oh, they looked at it and I looked at one, one cow, her name was Deborah, which means honeybee and new era of leadership. And she looked at that. And as she was talking to the group, she, she looked around and said, you know what? And tears started coming down her cheek. She said, I, I never thought that I could be a leader. I, people always told me, shut up and follow. And she looked around. She says, I, I think God's saying something to me here. And others encouraged her immediately. Of course, you're a leader. She says, I've never seen it in myself. Brought in these singer-songwriters, people whose uh, who your listeners have probably have, have their CDs or have them on their playlists for certain. They listened to the stories of these individuals and then wrote songs, original music about them. That was in a showcase concert that we did, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful time. Mo Pitney is a country singer who's 
whose grandfather actually started the mission in Rockford, Illinois. His aunt Sherry runs that mission, and he he came in and just prayed with these people, and just has a, a tremendous time. It was just it, it gave me chills to uh, to see this happen, but more so have me out there with these folks working. I got up early to make coffee and like 5.30 and I saw one of the one of the women standing at the fence looking down through uh, the pasture area and I called her name. She turned around with tears coming down her cheeks and, and she says, I am so happy. She said, there's, there's such a peace that you have being out here. And she says, I never knew it was possible to be so content with my life. That was my precious moment from that week and probably for the month. Well, thank you very That's much. That's great. Thanks, John. What a cool story. Where can people find you outside of this podcast? Well, we have a website that uh, is very simply citygatenetwork.org, citygatenetwork.org. You can find those places in your community that are part of CityGate Network, and it would be a place that you could support, you could go volunteer at, but it's also a place to recommend for people who are in need of the services that missions and similar ministries provide. All right. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is done by Boone Miyashola, and the music is done by Sweeps. Again, if you would like your free mug or you would like to be entered into that drawing for your free mug, screenshot us your Apple Podcast review and then send it to podcasts with an S at ChristianityToday.com. And we'll see you all next week.